So the title of today's lesson is, and there might be some disagreement over how to pronounce this word, so I'm just going to tell you, I may disappoint you. I'm going to call it slough. That's what I heard on YouTube, and that's what our friends across the pond say. So I hope that doesn't offend anybody. <laughs> today's title is The Slough of Despond. But I want to take a step back in Israel's history from Solomon and talk a little bit more about King David. He was, as I said, a good king. God called him my servant in 2 Samuel 7 and a man after his own heart in 1 Samuel 13. And as a good king, David faithfully served God by shepherding the people of Israel. He led them to be faithful to their covenant with God. He served God as a prophet as well. He spoke God's words to Israel. And he taught them how to love and worship God with the many psalms that he wrote. In the last two weeks, we specifically saw how he served God by modeling what their future king of glory would be like, but also by describing that future king in his messianic psalms. So David was a good king, and Israel prospered under his rule. But even so, all was not well. Snakes were creeping into the garden. Though Israel had rest from their external enemies, that other enemy, the enemy within, was alive and well. And even David sinned grievously against the Lord. He committed adultery with the beautiful Bathsheba, impregnated her, and then tried to cover his actions by hastily recalling her husband Uriah back from the battlefield so he could sleep with her. But when that didn't work, he tried to cover his sins another way, by plotting Uriah's murder. So Uriah was one of his uh, best fighters. He was one of the 30 who fought with David. And while he was out fighting for king and country, David had Uriah's men withdraw from him when the fighting got fierce so that Uriah was struck down and killed. In one of the bigger understatements of scripture, 2 Samuel 11 records that the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And so the Lord punished David like a father would a son. And he sent Nathan the prophet to ask him, Why have you despised the word of the Lord and done what is evil in his sight? Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own house. And all God's words are true. One of David's sons, Absalom, commits treason against David. And once more, David has to flee for his life back into the wilderness. God does restore the throne to David, but at great personal cost. The life of his son, Absalom, his own reputation, the havoc of civil war in Israel. So David sinned grievously, but his sin grieved him. It grieved David as it has grieved God. And so he repented of the evil he had done. And he wrote a psalm, as you would expect, lamenting his sin. And in the psalm, he admits that his heart had been wayward since birth. And he begs God to be merciful to him and forgive his sins. And he asks God to create in him a clean heart. 
You see, David recognized something that Israel struggled to understand, the depth of the problem of sin. David knew that sin is an ever-present enemy that just entwines itself around our hearts, even from conception. And so he pleaded, he wanted God to create in him a clean heart. Well, God forgave and restored David. He did take the life of that baby conceived in adultery. But David and Bathsheba had another son named Solomon. So we have a colorful cast of women in the genealogy of the king. And I mentioned the women in particular, not because they are any more colorful than their male counterparts, but because genealogies were exclusively told through the male line in those days. But God specifically mentions these women because he wants us to remember their stories and see what he has done. So there's Tamar, remember, guilty of incest, but still more righteous than her father-in-law Judah. There's Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute who blessed Israel. And then there's Ruth, the Moabitess, former idol worshiper. And now we have Bathsheba. But what we should recognize from these women and their histories is that God is eager and he is willing to forgive sin and even redeem it for his purposes. So powerful is God that he can take sin and really ugly situations and use them to accomplish blessing. But we have to ask ourselves, how is it that God can be so quick to forgive sin when his own law against sin demands death? Well, the prophecies we're going to talk about today answer that question. We're going to see that through the king priest of Psalm 110 and now the suffering servant of Isaiah, God will create a new heart in his people. And we need these prophecies of the king priest and new hearts to give us ballast when we get to the rise and fall of King Solomon. He was just a king and not a priest, so he can't be the one to stand in our place before God and fix our hearts. In fact, Solomon's own heart was very much sin-sick, as we saw two weeks ago. And in the latter part of his reign, remember, the prosperous new Eden just comes crashing down when Solomon listens to the voice of his wives. So remember how Adam listened to the voice of Eve in the garden and sinned, and Eve listened to the voice of the snake and sinned? Well, now Solomon heeds the wrong voice, and he begins to worship idols. And the people quickly follow their king, and they once more become entrapped in idolatry and perversity of every kind. As God warned he would do in his promise to David, he punishes Solomon as he would a son. So after Solomon dies, God divides the kingdom into two. And you can see on your handout, I have a rough timeline of the events that we've covered so far from the Old Testament. But this gives you an idea of where we are in history and, and where we're headed. So the kingdom is divided after Solomon dies, and Solomon's son, Rehoboam, rules only Judah, which is home to Jerusalem and the temple, and then the ten northern tribes are given to one of Solomon's enemies, Jeroboam. I'm sorry that their names are so similar. <laughs> that makes it even harder, doesn't it? But Israel has fractured. From here on out, the northern kingdom is known as Israel, 
and the southern kingdom is simply called Judah. One of Jeroboam's first acts as king of Israel is to make two golden calves, which he installs in two different locations in the northern kingdom, one in Dan and the other in Bethel. And he tells the people, you don't need to go to Jerusalem to worship God anymore. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. He then institutes his own festal calendar, his own sacrificial system, and priesthood. That's in 1 Kings 12. And reading that account gives me chills, and not the good kind, because we have seen this all before, haven't we? What do you think is going to happen now? Well, God will afflict Israel with all the curses outlined in Deuteronomy 28 because they have broken the covenant. But because he is also merciful, during this time, God raises up prophet after prophet, which he fills with his words and his spirit to warn Israel of the dangerous path they are on. If they don't repent, God won't just afflict them with enemy plunderers and famine and fertility. He will actually expel them from the promised land. He will expel them from the promised land just as he had expelled Adam and Eve from the garden. Exile is their future if they don't repent. They will be led away into captivity under a new oppressor. It's not Egypt this time, but it will be Assyria. Well, not one good king rises to power in Israel, the northern kingdom, not even one. Out of 19 kings, not one of, the, one of those kings followed the Lord wholeheartedly by turning away from worshiping idols. Well, as the wickedness in Israel grew, so did the power of God's prophets. During this time, Elijah and Elisha are prophesying. And they're, they're probably the most famous prophets we see in the Bible. So much power God granted them that even many years after Elisha's death, a brush with his bones brings a dead man back to life. That's in 2 Kings 13. Well, Ahab and Jezebel are probably the most famous king and queen of the northern kingdom. So we have great power from God's prophets on the one hand and great evil from the kings on the other. And the clash of these two forces make for some really interesting stories, the kind that you read in your children's Bibles. But things actually get so bad in Israel that Elijah despairs. He believes that no one in Israel is faithful to the Lord. But God graciously reveals the truth to him in 1 Kings 19.18, where he says, I have preserved 7,000 in Israel, 7,000 knees that have not bowed to Baal, one of the false gods, and 7,000 mouths that have not kissed Baal. So though most of Israel had joined with the enemy nations and kissed the wrong king, not all of them had done so. And even though Queen Jezebel had killed many of God's faithful prophets, God had preserved 7,000 faithful Israelites. So we can see that even in judgment on Israel, God has not given up on his people. Not all is lost. He has preserved a faithful remnant. Well, the northern kingdom lasted about 200 years, but because of her rebellion against God and because of her poor leadership, the kingdom began to shrink and shrink 
and shrink. So in 2 Kings 10.32, God says, In those days, the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. So he shrank its borders by sending enemies to take their lands. And then, in the end, after 200 years of patience from God, he sends them to Assyria. Assyria invades them and carts what was left of Israel off to their exile in 722 B.C. That is the northern kingdom of Israel. The southern kingdom of Judah, where a descendant of David sits on the throne of Jerusalem, fares only a little better. Out of 20 kings, four of them are really good kings, much like David, and four more are moderately good kings. So God preserves Judah a little bit longer because of the influence of these good kings on their people. And as God will often say throughout the prophets, for the sake of his servant David, he is slow, slower to punish Judah as he did Israel. So even 250 years here after David has died, God is still acting out of love and faithfulness to David. Well, a handful of good kings wasn't enough to keep, keep Judah from rebelling against God. And about 115 years after the northern tribes go into their Assyrian exile, Judah goes into its Babylonian exile. In three separate deportations, Babylon takes the best and brightest of Judah out of their homeland. And on the final deportation in 586, Babylon, under King Nebuchadnezzar, destroys Solomon's temple and carries all of its wealth off to Babylon. But before any of this happens, so just before Israel, the northern kingdom, is carted off to Assyria, God raises up the prophet Isaiah to prophesy from Jerusalem to Judah, saying, hey, your fate is going to be just like Israel's if you don't repent and wholeheartedly turn back to the Lord. When God commissions Isaiah as his prophet in chapter 6, he tells him that his work will seem fruitless. He's going to have that despair that Elijah had, and that all the judgments he warns the people are about, they're all going to happen because the people won't listen to him and they won't heed his warnings. Exile is certain, and he even says the land will be destroyed. So note once more Israel's similarities with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were sent out of their home into a world where the ground was cursed and barren. And here Judah is repeating the fall. They sin, they will be exiled from their home, and once more, the land will be destroyed. It will be cursed. Well, Israel's story, like David's song of repentance, teaches us that we all need God to create a new heart in us. Israel couldn't obey. They just couldn't do it. And neither can we. We need clean hearts if we want to return to the paradise of the garden. But in spite of all this sin, God is determined to keep his promises. He will restore Eden. Though he will punish Israel and Judah, their punishment won't be the final word. And we see that. That truth is clear also in, through the prophet Isaiah. So alongside his prophecies of doom and judgment, an occasional prophecy of incredible mercy shines brightly by contrast. In Isaiah 9, is one of those bright places. 
So let's look at Isaiah 9 together. It's on page 49 in your workbooks. And here we see out of anguish and darkness comes joy and light. Here God actually renews his promise of blessing on Israel. So all the hallmarks of blessing are in these seven verses. In verse 3, it says he has multiplied the nation. They're going to be fruitful once more. They're going to be many, just as God had promised to Abraham now 1,300 years ago. In verses 4 and 5, they will have rest from their enemies once more. Their enemies will be broken in verse 4. And then in verse 5, all their war uniforms, their boots and their garments, they're going to be burned up because they don't need them anymore. They're no longer necessary. So this helps us see that this prophecy is predicting, like we saw last week, the end of the conflict of the garden. No more war. Burn your uniforms because there are no more enemies. Only rest. With its mention of a joy-producing harvest in verse 3, we think of the reversal of the curse on the ground. Even the ground now will be fruitful. Also in verse 3, we have a picture of the people rejoicing before God, like they were celebrating in God's presence when Solomon built the temple. We see it again here. This is another hallmark of blessing. So all, all the hallmarks of the Eden blessing are right here in Isaiah 9. Rest, because there are no more enemies and no more conflict. Fruitfulness of the ground, multiplication of the people, God in their midst. And then in verse 6, we see dominion. Because one has been born to rule with the heart and character of God. And you can't escape this connection to Genesis. He is born as a baby. This is the promised son of Eve born to crush the snake. And he will be everything to his people. Wonderful counselor because he speaks the true and life-giving words of God. He will be called mighty God because he has the might and power to crush his enemies. He is the everlasting father. He will rule forever with the love a father has for his children and the prince of peace because he will bring peace to both the people and the land but not just to the people of Israel and not just to the promised land. Look at verse 7. He will spread his kingdom of righteousness and justice from the throne of his father David into every nook and cranny of the earth. In verse 6, we see his government increase, okay? His government is being fruitful. It's going to begin in Jerusalem, but then it will just spread and multiply to the ends of the earth. And so remember God's mission since creation. I said this the first week. He wants his image bearers to multiply and spread this Eden paradise into every corner of the earth so that the whole earth is full of his glory. And that is what is happening here. That is what this king will do. A baby will be born. He will grow up. He will rise to power. He will fill the throne of David and accomplish God's mission so that his people enjoy the Eden blessing, the Abrahamic blessing, the Davidic blessing forever. Well, verse 7 concludes the picture by reminding us 
that God will do as he promised. It looks bad now for Israel. It's doom and judgment in their future. But he, his promises are very much on track. He is zealous to accomplish it. He will do it. This new and better Eden will never topple as the original and all its reboots did. This time, no snakes will ever be allowed to enter the garden. That's what John tells us in Revelation 21, 27, where he writes, nothing unclean will ever enter it. Well, the next two prophecies that you studied for today reveal not when this baby will be born, but they do reveal how he will rise to power. And his path to the kingship is unsurprisingly very surprising. So from these two prophecies, we learn that the king of glory will actually earn his right to rule through suffering. We knew from Genesis 3.15 that the king of glory would accomplish his victory at personal cost. We saw that the very first week. We saw that when God told the snake that he would crush the heel of the one coming to destroy him. But here in these texts, we see the exact nature of that suffering. In these texts, we find a new title the king priest will wear. And here in these texts, the images of a conquering king are replaced with the picture of a humble and suffering servant. So first, we're going to look at Isaiah 49 on page 50. So in this text, it is the servant who speaks. So you imagine his voice calling out in verse 1, because he's not calling out to the world in verse 1, because he's not just addressing Israel. He's addressing the coastlands and the peoples. So remember, peoples, that word is often translated nations. He is speaking to the world. He is moving beyond Israel and speaking to the world, asking them to listen. So we have to ask ourselves the same question. Will we listen to his words? Well, in the second half of verse 1, the servant tells his story that from the time he was in his mother's womb, God had called him to a specific service and named him. And then in verse 2, we're told how God has, prepared, has been preparing him for that service. But in verse 4, we see what God names him and what he calls him to do. He is named Israel. And he is called to be God's servant. So right away, we notice that this new Israel shares not just the nation's name, but the nation's calling. He is to serve God. And we should assume that this servant will succeed where the nation has failed. God will have his glory through this Israel. But in verse 4, and for me, these are just the most heartbreaking words in all of Scripture. In this work God has prepared for the servant to do, the servant experiences the slough of despond. Look what he says, verse 4. I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Or as the NIV says, I have spent my strength for nothing at all. So we see that the servant expends his energy and the strength and the vigor of his youth, but still feels like he has accomplished nothing. 
He has worked so hard and yet feels like he has been fruitless. Like Isaiah must have felt when he was commissioned. Like Elijah despaired when he looked around and saw no faithful Israelites. So the servant feels. But also in that verse, he goes on to submit his life and work to the one who called him. Look what he says. Surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with God. So even in this desperate feeling of fruitfulness, fruitlessness, the servant expresses faith in God. He believes, he believes God. He believes he will be rewarded for his service. And even though at this particular point he feels like his work has been fruitless, he will wait for God to keep his promise. And then verses 5 and 6 show us that his work is actually far from fruitless. Look at what it accomplishes in these verses. He will restore Israel, verse 5, and then verse 6, he will bring back the preserved of Israel. But that is not all. And that is why I say he succeeds where Israel failed. God has determined it's too small a thing for you to just bring back Israel. But look at the last two lines of verse 6. He will also be a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. That was Abraham's blessing. That was Israel's job. And now that is what God calls this servant to do. Bring salvation to the whole world. Do you hear the echoes of Abraham's blessing? In Genesis 12, 3, God told Abraham, In you, all the peoples of the earth shall be blessed. This servant is Abraham's offspring. This is the one who will bring earthwide blessing. But in verse 7, we're back in the slough of despond. In order to bring Abraham's earthwide blessing, he will first be deeply despised and abhorred by Israel. He will be a lowly servant, but in the end, God will reward him for his work and toil. And verse 7 says, Kings shall see him and arise, and princes will see him and prostrate themselves before him. This is his exaltation, like we talked about last week. Though he will be humbled, he will be exalted as a king above all other kings. This is his reward, or his recompense, as he calls it in verse 4. And all this will happen because, in verse 9, the Lord is faithful. He made this promise, and he will keep it. He has chosen this man, called him from the womb to accomplish his purposes to restore Israel and bring salvation to the ends of the earth. You know, we've been accustomed to seeing these nations as enemies of Israel and therefore as enemies of God. But it has always been God's heart to bless the nations through Israel. And this servant whose path to the throne will mirror that of his father David will be the one to bless the nations. But first, anguish, rejection, and suffering. He will feel like he has failed. It will look like he has failed. But in God's most surprising reversal yet, 
He will elevate this despised and rejected servant to the throne of heaven. The exact nature of the servant's suffering and the specific effects of his suffering are revealed in the next prophecy in Isaiah 53. That's on page 51. We're going to divide up this prophecy into four sections answering four questions. So first, what does he look like? It's kind of surprising. Scripture often records how people look in the Bible. Just in this study, we've noticed that Joseph was as handsome as his mother Rachel was beautiful. Moses has been described as a beautiful baby, which is probably why Pharaoh's daughter was so smitten with him. Saul was a head taller than most of the other men, and so he was very kingly. David was handsome with beautiful eyes. Bathsheba was beautiful. That is why David desired her. And there are many more of these descriptions of physical beauty in the story because humans care very much about physical appearances. I, we have a good friend who is a pastor in Florida, but he's really only about my height. And he always said, tall guys have an unfair advantage. If you're tall, people automatically assume that you are a leader. <laughs> so I think he's on to something. As humans, we want our leaders to look a certain way. But here... The king of glory is described as having no form or majesty that to attract our attention. And he has no beauty that we should desire him. He is plain and he is humble. He doesn't look kingly or physically attractive. But he has the heart and the character of God. And that is why he alone is worthy to be king. He isn't what people think they want in a king. He doesn't look the part, but he is everything God wants in a king, and he is everything God knows his people need in a king. So don't be offended by his humility and his plainness, because when you truly understand what he has done, you will find him beautiful. Well, notice this prophecy also begins with a challenge, with a question. Who has believed? So once more, before we read the prophecy, we have to ask ourselves, will I believe? Will you believe what you are about to hear? Let's find the answer now to question number two on your handout. How does the servant suffer? Well, verse three shows us that the one God sends to bring salvation to the ends of the earth will suffer by being despised. He will be hated and rejected by the very people he is sent to bless. His life will be full of sorrow and grief so that when people see him, they'll want to avert their eyes from him. Like when we see people in a hard spot, a homeless woman, somebody who's fallen on hard times and we, we just want to awkwardly look away. So people in his when the servant suffers will will look away from him but it's worse than that verse 4 says people will see him as cursed by god they will assume that he suffers because god is against him for his sin they will think he bears god's curse because of what he has done verse 5 says he will be crushed 
chastised and wounded. And we thought the snake was to be crushed, but here it's the servant who is crushed. He is bearing God's curse. Verse 7, he will be oppressed, afflicted, and led to slaughter like a lamb. Verse 8, more oppression. He will be judged as a sinner and then executed for the crimes of a sinner. Those words in verse 8, cut out of the land of the living, describe death. And he will be cut down in his youth so that he will have no generation. Do you see that in verse 8? He is killed before the chance of having any offspring. And here we should remember Abel. As Abel died childless, so will the servant. And in verse 9, his death is certain. He will be put in a grave. This despised and cursed man will be buried, not just with wicked people, but also with the rich. And here I love how God includes the smallest details in his prophecies. He, I mean, Isaiah is prophesying about 750 years before these events will take place. So when we get to the Gospel of Matthew and we find Jesus' lifeless body in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, we have to marvel once again that every word the Lord speaks is true, every one of them, down to the smallest detail. Well, in verse 9, we see that though the servant was judged to be a sinner, he is actually innocent. This is innocent suffering. He doesn't deserve to die. He has done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Once again, it's this emphasis on truth. He always speaks the truth. It's the snake that lies and deceives. But the servant speaks truth, and yet he is the one who is crushed. So the servant suffers by being rejected and hated. He suffers by being misunderstood and lied about. He suffers betrayal and physical torment, and then he is executed as a criminal. And all this is innocent suffering. So let's answer the third question. Why? Why does he suffer? Well, back to verse 4. He suffers to bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. Verse 5, he is pierced, but it's for our transgressions. He is crushed for our iniquities. His chastising brings us peace, and his wounds bring us healing. Verse 6 says he suffers because the Lord lays our sins on him. So he suffers not for his own sins, but for ours. Verse 8 again, we see he is stricken for the transgression of the people. But something else is going on here, and we see another picture begin to emerge out of Isaiah 53. It's the picture of a priest offering an atoning sacrifice. So in verse 7, seven the servant is portrayed like a lamb who is led away to the slaughter. And he is an innocent lamb who will willingly, without any protest, go to his death. And the mention of a lamb should recall the Passover lamb, the lamb Israel first slaughtered way back in Egypt. The lamb whose blood, remember, they posted on their doorframe so that the avenging angel of death would not judge them 
and take their first, the life of their firstborn son, but would pass over them in peace. So now the blood of this lamb will cause God's judgment on sin to pass over us in peace. We also see priestly language in verse 10, where it says his soul will make an offering for guilt. And in verse 12, he will pour out his soul to death. So offering, pouring out, these are priestly duties. This is sacrificial language. So we can see that this servant is the king priest from Psalm 110. But as we learned last week, he is not a priest from the failed Levitical line. He's a priest in the line of Melchizedek. And as such, he will not offer the failed sacrifices of the Levitical line. He will offer a superior sacrifice. He will offer his own life. He will pour out his own blood to atone for the sins of the people. Verse 12, we see more of his priestly work. He makes intercession for the transgressors. Last week, we talked about priests being mediators between God and man. And here, the servant and king priest intercedes before God for sinners. So from this prophecy, we understand that the coming king of glory will suffer before he is exalted, before he can become king. He suffers in order to bear the curse of sin and death for God's people. God will judge this servant in our place. This this servant, as their priest, will offer himself as their sacrificial lamb. But there's more here. God rewards the servant for his toil. And what is that reward? Well, first, life. He gets his life back. He can't enjoy any reward for his work if he stays in that grave. But look specifically at verse 11. It says, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Again, how will he see or be satisfied if he is dead? And the implication is he won't stay dead. In fact, some translations say he shall see light. And in verse 10b, we read, and he shall prolong his days. And this is a hint of eternal life. He will die. He will be buried. But God himself will bring him back and prolong his days. He will never die again, but he will live forever as the king of glory. His exaltation is his reward for suffering. By his innocent suffering, he earns the right to rule the world. He proves himself worthy of this honor by his work as a servant and priest. We saw in Isaiah 49 that he will be a king above all other kings. And then here in verses 12 and 13, we have a subtle nod to this exaltation. God will give him a portion among the great, and he will get the spoils of war. But there's more. Remember how he died before he could have any offspring? That was in verse 10. Or I can't remember what verse that was in. But look at verse 10 now. So he died before he could have generation. But in verse 10, it says, After his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. Well, how is this possible? Look at verse 11. 
By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. So those people whose sins he bears become his offspring. And there are many of them. He gets a whole earth full of people who are now accounted as righteous. And they can be called righteous because of what this servant has done for them. He has borne their sins. He has poured out his life as an offering for theirs. He has stood before the Lord in their place as priest. And now he stands ready to mediate blessing to them. So we find that through this servant, God will accomplish his purposes. He will finally crush the enemy of sin and make his people righteous. And verse 11 hints at what will be made clear in the New Testament, that through this servant, God is actually going to perform another miraculous work of creation. So like he created Adam and Eve in his own image, so now he will recreate their sinful offspring into the image of his son. And he's going to do that by making them righteous, giving them new clean hearts like King David prayed for. He will make them righteous, in fact, like his own righteous one in verse 11. Now look at verse 10 where it says, The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So at one time, the servant despaired that his work had been in vain. Remember? But now he is prosperous and fruitful. He has effectively served God, and he has made many sinners righteous. So it is through this humble and suffering and despised and rejected servant that God will fill the earth with those who have been recreated in the image of his son. This servant accomplishes God's mission. That's what that phrase, the will of the Lord prospers in his hand means. He has been more fruitful than Eve. He has been more fruitful than Noah. He is more blessed than Abraham and more blessed than David because in verse 12, he poured out his soul to death and bore the sin of many. Two reflections before we have discussion time at our tables. So the first is on fruitfulness. So Jesus, of course, is the servant. We know that now. And he had to trudge through the slough of despond. But even so, he went willingly through that slough of despond. He went willingly to his death, trusting that God would keep his promise and make him fruitful. He didn't see the fruits of his labor when he took his last breath. But when God gave him new life, when he raised him from the dead, he gave him everything he had promised. A throne. He was given rule and dominion. He was given a kingdom, a people in his own image. And that kingdom even now is spreading into every dark corner of the earth. If you were at the meeting on Sunday night, you heard how God just recently brought an idol-worshiping family from a remote village in the Indian Himalayas into the kingdom of his son. 
So that lowly and despised servant of Isaiah 53 is alive, and he is king, and he is multiplying his kingdom. So Jesus reinvents our understanding of the blessing of multiplying. He had no wife, and yet he has multiplied more than anyone. He had no offspring, and yet he has been more fruitful than any one of us. And now, all of his followers can also be fruitful and multiply. In Jesus, God redeems every barren womb. You don't need biological children to be fruitful. As the servant offered his life, you can offer your life as a living sacrifice. You can bear the fruits of righteousness. You can bear the fruits of love towards your neighbor, and you can nurture many into the kingdom of God. You can join God's mission of spreading his glorious kingdom across the globe and into every corner of the earth. Because of this servant, even barren wombs are now fruitful. Because of the servant, the widowed and the unmarried can multiply. Because of the servant, none of our work is ever done in vain again. We live and breathe under a curse, the curse on the world, and we, we know that feeling that our work has been in vain, but Jesus experienced it too, and he has redeemed our work. And God does redeem and can use all of our work so that his will now prospers in our hands. Those who embrace the servant receive God's blessing, and now we can all be fruitful and multiply. The second reflection is on confession. So in a moment, you're going to read portions of King David's Psalm of Confession that he wrote after his grievous failure with Bathsheba and Uriah. And his words help us know how we should pray when we have grieved our king by sinning. So our king came to bear the curse for our sins. It is our sins that cause this suffering. So what a grief it is then to keep committing those crimes which pierced him. And yet, we are told that even though we have been given new clean hearts that can hear God's words and that now want to obey them, we will still wrestle with all our old sinful impulses. We still sin. But Jesus taught us what to do when we sin. We ask God to forgive us. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught us to form the habit of confessing our sins. And that is important because though our sins no longer condemn us, they don't hold any power over us, unconfessed sin can make us unfruitful. So Proverbs 28, 13 says, whoever conceals his sins does not prosper. And that word prosper is consistently linked with this idea of fruitfulness. So whoever conceals her sins won't be fruitful, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy, so much mercy when we confess our sins. So as David experienced a renewed joy in his salvation when God forgave him for his sins, so do we when we habitually confess ours. Forgive, confess, confession and forgiveness brings freedom and fruitfulness. 
So let's close in by praying. Father, thank you again that all your words are true and that we can trust them. Your words were true when you spoke of the conflict that would rage outside the garden. They were true when you spoke of judgment on the world in Noah's day. You kept your promise to an old man and his old barren wife and gave them a baby. You kept your promise to turn Abraham into a great nation. Everything you told him came to pass down to the smallest detail, even that his nation would come out of Egypt with great possessions. When you told Israel that they could have the land of Canaan, you led them safely through the wilderness and drove out their enemies before them. You promised them blessing, and so many blessings you gave them. You promised judgment if they sinned, and true to your word as you always are, you punished them. You promised that David, an heir, would sit on the throne of Israel, and even now, Jesus sits enthroned. You promised Solomon would build your temple. You prophesied of exile, and all these things came to pass. You spoke of a faithful servant who would come to bear the sins of many, even speaking of his grave. Again, every word you speak is true. So forgive us for not listening and for not believing. If faith comes through hearing your word, give us grace, Lord, to turn repeatedly back to your word so that our faith can grow. Help us to keep listening and help us crush with our shield of faith the rising doubts and the rebel sighs that creep like a snake into the garden of our hearts. Search us, O oh Lord, and see if there are any grievous ways in us. Bring those areas to our attention so that we can repent and find mercy and renewed joy in our salvation, and so we can be fruitful all the days of our life. Make your will to prosper in our hands. In Jesus' name.